0: Welcome to, well, I was calling them the post-Biota Podcasts. I'm not sure what we actually call them now, but we are starting a new discussion with Imi Khan. Imi,
1: pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Yeah, really excited.
0: I think what generally happens with these things is we record maybe three or four of them, then we pick a name and then we create a new podcast feed or what have you. But today we're starting out with a Biotacast feed, uh, Biotacast.org. And, you know, who knows what will happen with this thing. But um, in terms of a general introduction, I notice here in your notes that you would... The word hate is a very strong term, but where you originally started with the artificial life community or your first transition, talk a little bit about how you got involved with artificial life.
1: Yeah, so no, the, the hate's a really interesting thing. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I so my first exposure to artificial life as, as I know it now was during my my master's so this maybe goodness maybe over a decade well a decade ago now i think 2013 mm. um and, and my master's was actually in artificial intelligence and robotics and this Interesting. Was, yeah this was where my head was at i was always this, this you know we spoke a little bit offline about like terminator 2 i think i saw in the previous notes and, and as a as a child i watched terminator 2 and i'm like i'm gonna go into robotics this is my, where my head's always been mm. anyway so, so during my master's um on, on, there is a module i think it was evolutionary computation and artificial life or something like that interesting um, and and um, uh, you know as part of that we're, we're seeing videos of um so things like you know carl sims evolved virtual creatures mm-hmm. uh, talking about genetic programming cellular autom- automata and things like that and you know in my head i've got this this, like, this notion of i want to work with robots i don't understand these things what, what what are these things like what well, these are just simulations i don't i don't understand them um and, and it was at the time um i just didn't engage with it at all I, and, and i you know it's, it's quite, it feels like quite a naive thing to say now um but yeah i i it was probably the, the least favorite part of my of, of that course of that module at least and yeah so so this idea that I want to get into robotics and anything that's not neural networks or robotics, I've got, I've got no interest in. Interesting. Uh, but, but then, so, so I've, I've gone into my PhD, my, my PhD, you know, start using these, these airlife agent based models, um, uh, type simulations. Um, and in, so I, I don't know how it works in the rest of the world, but at least in the UK, what tends to happen is, um, you have almost like a kind of, kind of see, that's a hard word to say, uh, candidacy, How can I pronounce that word. Candidacy? Is uh, that what you're trying yeah, Very good, yeah. very good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, and uh, I've gone in um, and, and I've been running these simulations and uh, I've presented, uh, you know, a lot of data. You know, I've run these simulations, these are the data, this is the statistical analysis, and one of the examiners um, has looked at them and he says, like, are these coming from simulations and I'm like, yeah. And he and he's he said, well, what what do these you know what do these agents actually do? What do they you know how do they behave? And and I'm giving him the data because that, that was my background. It was like you know very AI, very data driven. Here are the results. Here are the stati- the statistics. Um, and and uh, the examiner, I, I believe, he had like um like an ethologist background. Uh, and and what he what he said like fundamentally changed the way I thought about these types of models. He said. You know, you need to start watching these simulations, like an ethologist, and you know, making reference to to Craig Reynolds, Boyd's, and you know, mm-hmm. saying that you have artificial animals here. You should be observing them and seeing what they're doing in the simulations. Uh, and there are just some things that you can't derive from the data alone. Uh, and, and you know, hearing that as part of my PhD sort of examination process, or you know, part of the the training from an esteemed scientist, uh, it it just totally changed the way that I thought about simulations, the sort of insights that we can derive from them, uh, and and actually realising that, you know, watching simulations and taking notes and and having subjective, uh, you know, opinions about what these agents are doing can actually constitute, you know, real science. And yeah, so after that, much of my time in my PhD was spent just, yeah, running the sufficient simulations to gain the statistically relevant results. Uh, But just, yeah, just watching simulations and just treating these agents like artificial animals and and just watching them and seeing how they behave. Um, Yeah, and it just completely changed my view of of what artificial life meant, you know, going from this idea that they are just meaningless simulations to actually actually looking at them a little bit differently and saying, no, they can actually be valuable, Uh, you know, just in their own right, just watching these agents... run around and and exhibit all types of different behaviors and emergent properties and so on.
0: Fascinating stuff. It's funny to look at the field. I mean, certainly when I started developing um, intelligent agents in simulated environments, it was still relatively controversial to even call that A-Life. And the whole definition of what A-Life has been over, I guess, the past two, now three decades, I noticed in your notes you said 30 years, I look back at Margaret A. Bowden's work and actually one of the benefits that I had through being part of the International Society of Artificial Life was actually to give Margaret A. Bowden the, her well-due um, long-service uh, award for, um, you know, assisting in the field. Her book, her Oxford um, and a, a kind of collection of works uh, was such an important book in my life associated with understanding what artificial life was then and, you know, Roddy Brooks' Um, work in Boston, and a bunch of additional things, so yeah it 's fascinating actually looking at a simulation as as a means of studying almost almost a cyber zoology for want of a better term uh, as a means of looking at the uh, agents within the simulation, certainly, in my own work, it has come to me almost like a narrative engine. Uh, the interaction of the agents creates its own narrative, which can be studied and looked at, um, and then very much about embodiment and you know, the claims that you're making about the simulation. But, um, to make this thing mutual, my started, I started developing intelligent agents and simulated environment work because I had a bunch of additional work that I'd done up until a point. Um, I started, uh, what's now known as the Ape SDK, what was originally called the Nirvana Project, it became Noble Ape, and then the Ape SDK when I was 19. So 27 years ago, uh, 27 years ago, actually last week. So, Wow. Through that, I came to this thing. I was thinking about this, and I actually put a couple of videos on YouTube and got an immediately positive response. I, When I started developing this kind of stuff, I was coming from a background, not of um, simulation necessarily, but actually games. I mean, most of my early simulation work occurred uh, before I'd even come to university. Uh, So I just collected existing games that I'd written, existing ideas, and put this thing into what is now the Ape SDK. But very much associated with visualization, very much associated with um, you know, basic levels of interaction. When I first started developing the simulation, uh, I was an undergraduate at university, and its main use was to try and drown the apes, basically. The university <laughs> students were, were fascinated by dragging the apes out into the ocean and seeing which would survive, what what would evolve through... Being incredibly brutalistic to these poor simulated entities. Um, and, but uh, to be clearer with regards to my background, my background was with regards to creating games, not games in the traditional computer game sense, but games as in pen and paper role playing games, um, very much associated with you know, creating mythologies, creating environments through that. And the earliest book that I have which really was something that, you know, defined my development existence, was a book made by Usborne, which I must have read when I was maybe in my early teens, maybe, you know, even earlier than that, um, called Write Your Own Fantasy Games on Your Microcomputer. So this is, we're talking now 1984, um, very much associated with the, you know, the BBC micros in the UK, Commodore 64s, these kind of things. But the book... It's fascinating. It's now available free on the internet. Usborn has made it freely available as a PDF. You can actually see how I kind of took these components together. So taking the first probably, I don't know, decade of my simulation work, I would actually write code books, physically write the code out and then give the code books to people because I didn't have a computer at the time. My, my family was very much of the view that um, I, they grew up in the anti-Vietnam period So the people that were pro-Vietnam were all engineers and, you know, hard-nosed scientists and these kind of things. So I'm not saying that my family was necessarily anti-computer simulation, but they just wanted me to get into a more productive uh, field that wouldn't leave me socially isolated and, you know, not give them grandchildren. Thankfully, now they have grandchildren. (laughs) So let's move on from that point. So my early dose of simulation was very much being the other very much wanting to participate. So the biota series uh, was a series of conferences originally. Um, By the second biota, I really wanted to get to the second biota. Ironically, and this is a shout out to Anton, my former co-host, we're going to be talking with Steve Grant, or I'm going to be talking with Steve Grant at the end of this month. And Steve Grant held the second biota conference in Cambridge. Uh, Folks such as Richard Dawkins, the late Douglas Adams, attended that. So, you know, that was the conference that I wanted to attend. So I started developing my simulation and immediately wanted to, I'd do anything. I'd, I'd pack up the chairs, I'd serve the tea and coffee at the Bio22 conference. I wanted to be there more than anywhere because it seemed like the exact, you know, kind of concatenation of thinkers and, and doers at the time. So it's been 27 years. It's very hard to really, I mean, I, it's funny actually because it's the simulation has changed its name. For a third time, I had a fellow friend actually in London I caught up with a few years ago, and he said to me, but didn't you just do this with the Microsoft guys? Every name change that I've had with my simulation has been associated with independently wealthy individuals wanting to own, you know, just the names, not even the ideas behind it. So I've had to change the name of the project, um, you know, twice in order to avoid these ridiculousnesses. The first time was a fellow from Microsoft or formerly of Microsoft, um and thankfully out of that I got a, a small bit of change from that. But the second one with the comedian just really, I mean, this is actually the early series. Thank you very much for going back and listening. I I feel incredibly apologetic, but also very much in the the service of Tim Taylor. Tim is the reason that you and I are talking currently. Absolutely. And um, my last interaction with him, I was still caught up in this whole, you know, watching, and these were. Ultimately, Wikipedia pages that also dealt with artificial life being um, vandalized—I think was the term that Bruce Dover used to describe what was going on at the time. Um, so, people I'd interviewed in these biotech podcast series—they um, had created the, you know, Wikipedia pages on artificial life and uh, the underlying simulations. I think certainly both, not necessarily as a mentor, but just someone who I like writing simulation with Larry Yeager, um, with Polyworld was very, you know, central to. Um, making my APSDK compatible with Polyworld at the time. I spent maybe six months doing that. Well, unfortunately, Polyworld has, has fallen by the wayside as one of these many simulations that no longer is, is maintained. Um, and really most of the past 27 years has been keeping the likes of Apple and Intel happy. Um, as an open source project, both Apple and Intel picked up the APSDK. It's funny because in my own thinking, my own thinking has changed with regards. I always thought, um, this very much when I developed the simulation in the early days associated with being assistive to other people for other people coming and getting involved with the simulation it's interesting because in one of our early conversations he said should I promote the APSDK should I get articles written and these kind of things well I've already kind of gone through that cycle I went through a period of academic publication with it and just seeing if there was any interest it's not that I'm jaded I just realized that I'm ultimately writing the simulation for myself fundamentally and that changes your own thinking. It changes your own relationship. I have two young daughters uh, who are both two twins who are two. Um, and they very much, I was thinking about John Klein because uh, Kyle Harrington, uh, Kyle rather, sorry, Harrington got back in contact with me. And I was thinking, well, John Klein did this amazing, you talk about blocky creatures where he wrote breve, which was a means of writing your own blocky creatures and looking at um, movement evolution. Well, as soon as he had children, he was out of the artificial life game. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm feeling in a similar light myself, but you just have to, you know, take smaller bites in terms of the stuff that you want to do within simulation. But uh, I think I've given some indication. That, did I miss any parts? Would you like to learn more about my? Well,
1: oh, I, I actually think I have some some questions, um, but, but maybe they sort of overlap because you know you've been sort of developing APSTK now for 27 years, um, and, it, and it sounds like. Almost at like the genesis of sort of our respective projects have come from different angles, right? So, and mm-hmm. and I and I've thought about this, and I've had this conversation with other people where it feels as though a lot of artificial life, rightly or wrongly, is in the service of natural systems or biology. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas it sounds like with Ape SDK, it, you know, you are its development is for its own sake largely. Is
0: that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think the, the role of mythology here is really important. I mean, coming to this not from you know, reading Dawkins' *Blind Watchmaker* or these kind of things. My whole interest in this was creating interesting simulated entities, not thinking of this. I don't think of myself as a capital or even a lower case S scientist. And this is one of the interesting things talking about Steve Grand because he very much. I mean, my interest, I guess, is like Darwin's pigeon fanciers—that basically you can be a hobbyist in this thing and still create interesting and probably productive things to science but i don't think of my work i don't think of myself as a scientist i think my work is based on this mythological creature the simulated ape um which has a number of properties has a number of social properties um and really the thing that i've taken out of this is in fact layering simulations so there's kind of in the philosophy of artificial life there was long standing competitive distinction between a variety of different simulations my view was that you actually put all those simulations together and then see what comes up
1: hmm. that's fascinating um, and then, and then you had also mentioned that uh, i can't remember the exact words it used, but but words to the effect of air life in its current iterations is is a little bit removed from from biota or, or or what the origins of biota was is Is that
0: something well, I think biota was always fundamentally about people. Well, sorry, this is my embodiment of biota. As you talk to Bruce Damer, he has a particular perspective on biota. But my view was always that you had ISIL. And the, uh, the International Society frames artificial life very much in the history. I'm not sure if you've met Mark Bodeau, but Mark Bodeau is, and I've had a few conversations in these podcast recordings with Mark. You, you know, there's a history of, of ISIL and there's a history of biota. And the history of biota is very much let's get a group of thinkers together and you know see what comes out of this conversation uh, versus ISIL, which is associated with a, a quite an important history of the way these simulations have developed. Uh, obviously, you know blocky creatures, swimmers, these kind of things are still. I'm going to be talking with Jeffrey Mantrella. He's got a paper for the next bio uh, for the next sorry ISIL conference, um, and again very much associated with. Genetic evolution of movement and these kind of things. I mean, there's there's a history of ISIL which is very
1: distinct from the history of biota. Hmm. Okay, yeah, no, it's fascinating. I, I think what I'm I'm going to start trying to do in, in these ongoing conversations with you is sort of just learn a lot about the history because so, I so I I appreciate you know the, the field, not just AI life, but you know all the scientific fields right now are just moving so fast. But there is a you know this rich history in people and personalities and models and all these things that i i need to learn about and, and i you know hopefully the listeners tuning in if you get any new ones might might be able to pick up some some history as well um but i think it's fascinating I you know the conversations and even the, some of the the things that i have read uh from you mm-hmm. and actually one question that i did have and this may be jumping the gun a little bit was again it's 27 years and at least you know the way that I have approached AI life, uh, in, in my PhD, my research is that like it is there for a purpose, and that purpose is for research, and research equals funding and careers mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And um, how I guess this is yeah, just as a as a question, like where does the motivation come from? Because I, I think it's it's completely admirable. Um, to be able to continue something on for so long um, but it not you know at this point not necessarily having the career incentives the financial incentives associated with it you know what is the motivation to continue to maintain you know that core you know I was looking at your your commits for instance and it seems like every week you're, you're committing updates <laughs> so it's just like, I, I just I find it I find it so interesting and I find it so admirable that I Yeah. Well, maintaining
0: something like this, I mean, it it seems to be drudgery in some regard, but modern-day operating systems, I mean, when I first started developing this stuff, you were literally multiplying bytes together. That was the best you could do. You were dealing with 16-bit interfaces, and so a lot of it is just, I mean, I don't necessarily want to say it's drudgery, but I've kept Apple happy for a number of years. It's ironically how I am in my present job um, with Netflix was they needed someone who had a history of keeping Apple happy (laughs) (laughs) because Apple is, is incredibly dynamic but also will constantly rip up, you know, they have one interface for doing graphics in one way. They'll rip that up within three years. You have to change the way you do graphics. So a lot of it is actually very, you know, bread and butter, just maintaining software kind of stuff. It's just about, you know, making sure that... It's interesting actually because Apple has a technology called Metal um, which is a graphics technology. And for the longest time, I was an early Metal developer. I got the graphics working through Metal. Um, but it was a very long-suffering thing. It was something that actually I filed many bugs with Apple associated with this Metal technology, um, which was basically the replacement from Op- OpenGL. They had OpenGL support, and then they realized that they needed their own proprietary graphics Um so, anyway, within that, uh, probably five years of my life was <laughs> spent maintaining this. And ultimately, now I don't use metal anymore. I've, I've gone through uh, what has been, uh, you know, now a familiar situation where I'm just like, these simulations need to be run for days. You know, you need to have a simulation environment which will run for simulated years, but it takes days of running on these computers. And if the graphics technology has got memory leaks in it and is crashing periodically, they're not compatible. So I've basically gone back almost a decade worth of graphics technology now because, funnily enough, these companies are making computers that are faster now. So you don't need the, you know, the raw and I mean, metal got its name because you're, you're, you know, touching the metal, so to speak, you're getting to that level. So a lot of it is very, you know, it's not stuff that I'd necessarily recommend my children get into. It's very, you know, drudgery associated with, okay, so this is the new technology that I need to implement. This is, which I think ultimately was probably the end of Polyworld. I mean, Polyworld was very much an OpenGL system. Um, I'm going to be talking with Steve Grant in a few weeks about the way he does his Microsoft graphics. Um, so a lot of it is just drudgery. I mean, it, it does seem like, you know, because you see the commits, uh, you might get a sense that this is just, you know, fascinating ongoing work. The underlying stuff associated with narrative, however, I find incredibly captivating. I mean, I love running the simulation for, you know, weeks on end just to see the curious, the curious interpersonal relationships that these simulated entities develop. Um, I gave an example when I was talking at probably now a decade ago, um, the A life 12 conference, which is the only A life conference I've ever attended. Uh, and I was showing that, you know, you can have false parenthood where the ape believes that their parent is a particular, you know, simulated entity, but it turns out it's not actually that simulated entity. because a lot of these things associated with, um, you know, hierarchies of, of family trees and these kind of things are actually done through the narrative part of the simulation, not necessarily you could, in, in parallel to the genetic part. So you can interrogate these entities and say, okay, well, this person thinks that so-and-so is their father, but actually it's very kind of Jerry Springer-esque in some regard. <laughs> But You know, you can have these family that are reinforced through social interactions, you know, aunts and uncles and these kind of interactions reinforce and family things. But then within the community, this idea will come out, ah, so-and-so is probably not actually so-and-so's father. It's probably this other simulated entity. Um, and that in itself creates a churn of the, the narrative component. Um, but yeah, I, I guess there's sufficient interest. I mean, the stuff that interests me currently um, is very much associated with the underlying format of the data because it becomes big data. It becomes a big data problem eventually when you run one of these simulations for a relative period of time. So there are always things that interest me in there, but a lot of it is just, oh, no, Apple's changed how it does this. Or, you know, it's a lot of it's drudgery too. hmm
1: uh-huh. And what was... So I'm just trying to pick your brain with various things. So what was the use of Ape SDK, or I guess it was Noble App at the time. What what was the use for Intel and Apple? And Apple. Mm. So these companies are, and funnily
0: enough, they're now competing to do this. There was a period of time where they're aligned, now they're competing. But the idea is that they fundamentally produce hardware, and they produce hardware that need metrics to govern the hardware. So when Apple used it, they used the eight brain cycles per second metric, which is a metric that I still use myself. And what they were trying to do was, okay, so here we have this code. At the time, the, the Cogneb simulation, I don't call it the neural network, it's a Cogneb simulation, was what they were looking to actually optimize. So they were using their low-level threading technology. And then um, when Intel took it, they took the view to break it down, the computation part into atomic Uh, elements of computation and then thread that and optimize for speed based on that so it's very much a metric um, that was used by both apple and intel so for example the history of computing now is of you know let's take 10 cores or 20 cores or 32 cores let's see what multi-core processors will do well that was the nature of what they were using the simulation for they wanted to get it uh, basically to make the chips as hot as possible. I used to joke with people that you could, you know, fry a chicken basically with the amount of heat that you got out of – these were the G5 technology, which, you know, people – you'd need to have a history of computation. But, uh, you know, 2005, Apple and Intel were using it very much for – um, how can we get the most processing? And that's what they demonstrated it because there's a graphics component to it as well. Um, it was very receptive. Apple used to distribute it with every Mac that they sold um, because it was just something that you know people were very receptive to. You can have a very detailed graphics environment plus the processing that goes along with that. Let's work out ways to optimize that.
1: Oh, wow, I didn't expect that. No, that's pretty cool.
0: It's pretty cool. Certainly at the time when they did videos, I mean, I was in the UK at the time, uh, and they would, they hit off their, I mean, we've just had WWDC again, but they would start their conferences, sometimes demonstrating my um, noble ape as it was then. I need to share one of the videos with you, actually. I, I keep a few of the, well, I keep one of them specifically the first time it was ever displayed by Apple, uh, because that. Unfortunately, the two engineers who were displaying it were very quickly let go from Apple, unfortunately. One of the parts of the movement of the processors from Apple to Intel was basically Apple didn't want to retain the processor optimization folk once they moved to the Intel architecture. Again, this is a history of computing thing because now, obviously, Apple makes all their own chips. So, anyway. Fascinating.
1: Um, and I, I, One question I did have... Sorry, I'm asking lots of questions, actually, but... um we we actually wrote it in the notes. So this this idea of being inspired in some way by apes, right, mm-hmm. or using simulated apes, I wonder, is that is that just a word that you use or is the intention or was the intention ever to relate it or validate it to you know actual ape-like behavior or dynamics?
0: Well, it's interesting, actually, that you mentioned the Terminator series, and I, I probably should get back to this. They've always been, in my own mind, they've always been Sentient entities. I mean, they've they've had their own stuff going on within them, very much an internal world, external world dichotomy in some regard. One of the strange uses of my uh, simulation, uh, I discovered this because originally it was mainly downloaded by university students, and I get the standard kind of fair you know, questions associated with the way that I'd written it in C and this kind of stuff. But for a period of time, the Iranian military started downloading uh, the. I <coughs> know, oh, seriously. And I had no inclination of what the, I mean, it was fascinating to see how the relationship between Iranian universities and the Iranian military was, but uh, for a period of time, and we're talking tens of thousands of downloads here. So we're talking Uh something where obviously it was being used internally. And, it's somewhat jokingly you know with with people when I commented about this at the time, I thought, well, obviously they're making Terminator like robots out of my their sticker um, you know obviously that's a natural conclusion that that that's a technology that they have to be developing with you know the military at the time and i've periodically um well, when I first left Australia, I nominally was working for a virtual reality laboratory. Uh, taking simulation and putting them into VR labs. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with VR technology, but they had for a period of time this notion of caves, which were literally you got into this environment surrounded by um, 3D projections. You had to wear polarised glasses, but you would be very much in a simulated environment um, projected out. But Mm -hmm. the, the main application for this was, you know, aerospace... Obviously, you know, motor vehicles, and I think we worked with Saab and various other car manufacturers for this particular VR lab. But the military applications of this kind of stuff, one of the earliest trips I did to the US, I went to the University of Houston that had a NASA lab. And the thing that fascinated me about that, I mean, coming from Australia, space exploration was always just like an untouchable realm of humanity um, that, you know, people had actually gotten to the moon and mucked around on the moon and then come back i mean that anyway so at the time uh, i was looking at nasa simulations and these were requiring vast you know sun workstations literally um classrooms full of when i say full here i mean literally stacked like there was no ground there were just boxes on top of boxes on top of boxes of these sun workstations so I got a sense then that what I was doing with open source, it was very much in contrast to this, but I could never understand why, you know, NASA, for example, um, and Bruce Davis had a long-standing relationship with NASA as well, didn't embody open source. Like if they created these simulations and made them publicly accessible, then they wouldn't have, you know, lunar rovers that broke down because they were using different metric units and different parts of their interaction. The beauty of open source would be, that these would be, you know, just uh, almost a lingua franca of, you know, means of getting these environments out there. So when the Iranian military was downloading my uh, APSDK for a period of time, I thought this was in stark contrast to what I had seen with regards to NASA and the American, you know, military establishment. And actually, interestingly enough, there's a gentleman who's now retired, I believe, called Bowen Lofton, who... um when I was doing, we we might have time to talk about this today, we might not, um, but I wanted to, to simulate sea lion, which is the German invasion of England. This struck me as um, certainly my later life work, so to speak, at something that had just been completely and utterly mishandled. Uh, it wasn't very much a simulation in the 1960s, but the numbers and the stuff involved within that were just uh, you know, apparently wrong where was I going with this conversation? This is very much a a Saturday morning for me. I need to have another sip of coffee. But yeah, I think it's been interesting. They've always been apes. They've always been apes in my own head. The mythology has always been apes. There's a lot of music that actually comes with this stuff as well. I mean, one of the things that I really enjoyed about learning about your side of things was that we we both have a mutual interest in creating music as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and it's really interesting. So this is, as an aside, is, is one thing that I've, been thinking about because i i mean i've not i've not visited my simulation for a little while but it, it, we had this again a conversation maybe for for a, another episode is uh, about communicating uh, communicating simulations and making mm. you know, simulations actually accessible and yeah this this idea of layering on sounds uh onto interactions or movement or things like that just to give it an extra dimension of you know these entities these agents mm are moving like they are quote-unquote alive in some sense um but it's interesting that, that you talk about the um the apes uh because at least for my research uh i mean my agents i wouldn't necessarily call them simulated apes although the way that they work and the way that they behave in some respects are inspired by a sort of like hormonal dynamics and simple behaviors mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. grooming and, mm-hmm. and, and aggression. But I, I find it a challenge uh, trying to communicate that to people who mm. are not air lifers. And, and I've, I've experienced this very recently um, when I've, you know, I've presented my simulation to a group who uh, n- largely are not computer scientists by trade. Mm-hmm. and So are even aware of artificial life um, as a discipline. And so one of the questions and challenges that I had was, how do I communicate the simulation to those those people? And actually, the way I got around it was just about, you know, seeing them as artificial animals, Mm animats in their their own right, uh, and, you know, removing any sort of, like, target model from there. Uh, And, you know, I think that sort of widens people's, uh, ability to envision what these agents are doing because I think, yeah, there is a sense of you need a little bit of imagination mm. when trying to layer on a narrative to what these like dots running around a screen. You know, they could, but you, you can, can capture this. a narrative, which I think is certainly.
0: I worked with the roboticist Bob Mottram uh, for a few years, and the idea that you're fundamentally creating a narrative. I mean, if they're if they're grooming, then you just say that they're grooming. If they're Swimming, you say that they're swimming. If they're selecting particular foods, you describe that. And creating in parallel to w- what these agents are doing, a narrative is an incredibly powerful way to, as you say, communicate with people that have no notion of this underlying simulation. But also, it shows the power of the simulation. It shows the intrinsic, uh, you know, diversity. The fact that there are multiple different kinds of interactions, and they um, embody uh, a series of different things. Bob Martin was a social roboticist, fundamentally. So he took the workers center of Brazil and, and various other people in the field and created a relatively simple simulation on top of the many other simulations that was in the APSDK. And uh, it meant that they had social drives, they had sexual drives, they had um, uh, hunger uh, and, you know, tiredness. There were these drives that they had within them and the way they interacted, you just made a, an event, a narrative event occur when they interacted. And then you just produce the output of the narrative events, which gave you the the rich, almost soap opera-like tapestry of these simulations. And very much associated with re-embodying the agents, or at least framing the agents in terms of all the nature of the interactions that they had. So I think really it's uh, just another interface. It's just another means of looking into the simulation and providing a narrative engine interface to it. And I was really very thankful for my time with Bob because he you know has provided so many different just you know cutting these simulations in a different way and I think that's maybe a missing part I, I don't necessarily want to get you using my APSDK for uh, you know or get you into the fold of that development if you're not already there so to speak but I think the ability to add a narrative to these things was independent but also going kind to of change me spun me on the spot associated with these simulations
1: yeah no i think you're completely correct um i mean i I sort of in in the simulations that I have um yeah they i mean when these agents interact, they sort of like change color or they flush um a certain color, and that indicates that some sort of social interaction has mm-hmm. taken place uh but yeah, I mean, there's no sort of output that says agent x has just performed y i mean I could have it um but yeah, I mean, there's no reason why I haven't done it to be fair, so maybe it's something to think about um. But yeah, I, I think it was just a broader question of I think if you introduce these artificial agents as, you know, uh, replicating, you know, an ape or a mouse or whatever yeah. it might be, um, then perhaps people necessarily expect behaviours associated with that, that real-life animal to emerge from these, from these uh, simulations. And if they don't, people have questions, uh, you know, why is it not doing this or why does it not do that? Um, whereas I think, yeah, just sort of generalizing a little bit and saying, you know, they're just artificial animals in their own right. Um, although they are inspired by these dynamics and in, in these systems of these animals. Um, I found in my experience at least that that has just made them a little bit easier, um, in terms of accessibility for people just to understand what's going on. Um, and, and especially, I think that's more important, especially when we're thinking about, uh, for me where I have, uh, like biological like hypotheses from biology and neuroscience that we're mm-hmm. trying to test and use these models i think there has to be a little bit more um understanding of of what's going on in the model uh and grounding it a little bit more in that sense um yeah i i don't know where that train of thought was going either but uh, yeah it's just um it's just it's just nice to to think about i guess is is how do we communicate these things to to other people certainly i mean thinking of the user in a critical
0: light thinking of the user as ultimately needing things has been very much the nature of the way I've developed simulation over, you know, 27 years. I think the the criticisms of there not being enough embodiment or not being enough description or not being enough these kind of, you know, these things to enable a different kind of user to use the simulation or explore the simulation in another way. I've always thought of this. It's interesting, actually, because of, because I described moving from thinking about these simulations as something some, someone else would use to just grounding it very much. I think of the, the model rail community, the train community, because one of the other podcasts, which I actually did based on the boat podcast, was a podcast called Model Rail Radio, which continues on to this day. People that create, um, you know, train layouts and these kind of things very much have the same kind of, you know, feedback that they get from users that come to their train layouts that I get from these simulations. People will come and say, why isn't the ape doing this? Or why isn't this doing that? Or how mm. can I see this? And, Thinking of the user, the, the third party in a critical light, um, oftentimes motivates my own development in, with this too. So I think you should probably think not just of the agents, <laughs> but of the actual users as being other forms of, uh, you know, embodied sent- sentient entities. One of the beautiful things that I like out of artificial life, which is a, a very much a byproduct is the way people have used visualization, um, you know, less using things like narrative as a means of actually describing these simulations, but very much with the view that the way that these simulations continue to maintain and replicate is by actually keeping the user happy, right? So I think that's something that that I've always enjoyed with uh, talking with other artificial life simulators is either explicitly or implicitly, they understand that what they're creating is a thing of the fundamental beauty, um, you know, getting into aesthetic uh, philosophy for a moment and the, the the nature of creating something that will be self-sustaining and, you know, maintain over, you know, heaven forbid, 27 years is associated with creating something that ultimately users enjoy interacting with as well.
1: Yeah. And and yeah, over the years, so I should say, I've, I've only really been embedded in the air life community for about three years, but some of the, the air projects that, that sort of self-describe themselves as this is a life art
0: mm-hmm. we're not
1: doing science we're not mm-hmm. you know um we're, we're not trying to test some hypotheses we're just creating these artificial life beautiful simulations mm-hmm. that, that just look really nice for their own sake yes obviously grounded in, in, in a lot of the theories and, and some algorithms that that we might we might be familiar with you know cellular automata, genetic programming whatever it might be but the fundamental service that they are providing is just to look beautiful aesthetic yes Um, And I wonder, like, did the biota community have anything similar? Was that was that prominent then as well? Well, we've always reached out to the uh,
0: artificial life artists. We've always had in our, I mean, one of the beautiful things about Jeffrey Ventrella's work is just how striking his aesthetic perspective is. And I think we've always had. um, I mean, certainly I've talked with a couple of folks. Name escaped me, unfortunately, who are you know giving annual artificial life art prizes. Um, And I think that the aesthetic part of this... When you talk about cellular automata. I developed cellular automata before I knew what cellular automata was. <laughs> I mean, the nature of there being an existing body of work is one thing, but also just as, almost like childlike play. You can create cellular automata simulations that are aesthetically stunning. I mean, some of the non-spatially uh, based ones where they have, you know, floating point mathematics and cellular automata create these amazing you know, bubble and sphere universes and these kind of things. And it it very much is not necessarily about the history or the body of work that has led up to this development. It's just a few simple organic ideas that the artist will pick. Uh, And to have a visual, to have the the mind or the view of the artist as you create these kind of simulations is incredibly powerful. Um, Certainly when I started developing this stuff, I did art installations just as a means of the cognitive simulation is has very uh, particular visual qualities to it. You can see when the apes are dreaming. Uh, you can see when the apes are, you know, eating. When they're, you know, these kind of interactions and visually the different cues come through the simulation. Uh, but I I do think that a lot of the elements of this I when I used to edit the site on a regular basis I was constantly. Not explicitly fielding questions from the media, but actually instigating every time the next cellular automata creation came out. And this is novel. This is new. This has never been done previously. And actually, no, there's a longstanding history that you probably need to understand as well. So I was almost an instigator uh, as these media reports would come out and say, never before done cellular automata. You know, never before done very fundamentals of artificial life simulation. Um because I think the media, and it's interesting actually, as we live in the world of, of chat GPT, open AI, a few of the folks I've interviewed in this podcast series have actually a part of open AI, which is interesting. But the nature that anyone now can become, uh, or anyone now by the nature of just having a YouTube channel or something like that becomes an artificial, uh, intelligence expert, becomes a, a domain knowledge expert and the fact that they can absorb, uh, you know, what these, the uh, simulations are providing now these large language model simulations. Uh, it changes the field because certainly, you know, two three decades ago, people were coming to this very much from the perspective of the Terminator and the Turing test and all these kind of things, which have dissolved recently um, because the nature of these simulations have become broadly more accessible. Which is another thing which we probably should discuss at some stage that these things are now very accessible and really the whole narrative associated with what is simulation what is computer art all these kind of things is is constantly changing uh, particularly as individuals who are not domain area experts they're not historically knowledgeable in this thing but now come to chat gpt or now come to these amazing uh, generative ai art projects now that are coming out I mean I think the the field is changing dramatically but returning to the notion of aesthetics absolutely critical if you're creating an artificial simulation that you want to maintain for a long period of time and have a reasonable user base you need to very much either borrow from artists or or steal where possible um these ideas uh to you know make your simulated environment uh, not just aesthetic but also just deeply interesting um, I don't necessarily want to make it a su- superficial uh, means of descri- describing aesthetics. I think the underlying elements, as we were talking about with regards to weights, things that will keep a user interested. Fascinating stuff.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly it. Um, and and I find, you know, there are even even someone who is sort of well versed in in life work. Um, I, I find sometimes I'm looking at work or reading work. Uh, and I find it hard to visualize and I try to find it hard to sort of understand what's going on. And then you see people present it and, you know, there's a, a visual component to some of the results that they are presenting and, and so they look nice. And I think, yeah, e- even for people who are experts, I think having a visual layer on top of, you know, the simulations or whatever it is you might be running is hugely, hugely important. Um But I, I think this is one of the things that I really like about the AirLife community is that it actively holds a space for, for what it calls a life art. You know, mm. every year of the of the conference, we see that there are sessions dedicated to a life art. There are awards dedicated to a life art. And I think, I don't know, maybe you do. I, I don't know of, of many of the fields that, that actually take that kind of stuff seriously. Um, yeah. And I, I just think it's hugely valuable, valuable, uh, like you said, uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what's um, what might be presented at this year's Air Life as well uh, with regard to the art. Because again, it wasn't something that I was aware of because I was so dismissive of Air Life for many, many years. is like, you know, it, it blew my mind when I started actually seeing some of, the, some of these art projects and uh, and simulations. So things like, you know, Lenia, which you, you're probably familiar with, but, you know, it, it's, it has its own scientific contribution, uh, but it's actually just a beautiful simulation as well. Uh, and, and there are many, many others. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's fascinating. Most definitely. Uh, okay, I think what else do we have to talk about on this list? Uh, oh, I think we might have gone through everything.
0: I think we have quite yeah. comfortably. It's become
1: yeah. I, it's it's
0: getting to that point of the recording where I would normally say, if folks want to get in contact, please get in contact. <laughs> I, I will act as the uh, as the I don't know secretary or what have you for. Um, any correspondence that might be had uh, based on just the conversation we've had today. It's been a real pleasure in me. And I think we, we have a number. Look, the one of the topics that I find absolutely fascinating because it's impacted me in a variety of different directions, which will be in an upcoming conversation is the notion of theism and simulation. And that was the topic when you wrote it down. I thought, oh, we've got at least a podcast, if not three podcasts out of just that one topic. <laughs> so I want to warn people. Uh, part of historically the artificial life community that I've seen is, is the naysayer. Um, you know, it, it can't be simulated agents, um, you know, intelligent agents in a simulated environment. It has to be, you know, these things. The naysayer always plays in the back of my head. I did actually meet, I, I've met historically some of these people um, who've usually humored me for a single hour long meeting and then never corresponded with me ever again. Um, but the nature of, uh, the, the artificial life naysayer, the, the traditionalist, let us say, um, always captures me as, as we were talking today. I had a, f- a few points where I thought that naysayer will probably be back in contact through some email conversation, uh, at some stage. But look, for our listener base, I think Imi and I have portrayed perfectly with the ramblings that we've done today what my hope is for the future recordings that we will do. But if you have topics that you would like us to talk about, um, please do get in contact with me. My my email address is my last name, Barbalay, which ends in a T, at gmail.com. Please get in contact with me. I will forward on your correspondence to Emmy, and no doubt we will have uh, a number of hopefully user-directed conversations in the upcoming recordings as well. Excellent. Thank you very much, Tom. It's been a pleasure, Emmy. And, yes, if you want to take this podcast in a direction where you have some ISIL-related news or these kind of things, feel free to throw that in as well.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, the nature, like you said at the beginning, the nature of these things, is they sort of just evolve and, and yeah, just things sort of naturally emerge, don't they? So I'm, I'm sure we'll figure out stuff over time. My plan is to get this recording out quickly
0: and make it available to as many people as possible. So... Pleasure chatting and look forward to. I think we're talking next week too. Are you, you know. in
1: transit currently, or are you? In no, transit? so I so, so yeah, very quickly. Sweden, uh, maybe we've spoken about this. Sweden basically shuts down over the summer. Ah, so uh, yes. Hey, uh, uh, still working uh, as researchers do. Uh, you don't really have time off. Uh, so, so summer is the time that I actually get to do the work that I want to do. So here we are. Uh, but I, I'm in the UK now for the summer. I'll, I'll probably be at a couple of conferences, but yeah here for the next couple of months, so which means that I am at least sixty minutes closer to you uh in time zones, which is nice. Well my coffee's been very good to me this morning. That's what I'll say.
0: <laughs> anyway, pleasure as always in Look forward to talking yeah. to you soon. Take care. Thanks for your time. Bye bye.